You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Welcome to the program, everybody. How's it going, beautiful Canada? We've got a great show for you today. We are going to give you the latest on the mask mandate dropping in Ontario. We'll give you the latest on the war, the prime minister in Germany today. We'll go on the ground in Ukraine. we got a lot going on. But let me just give you a, a little update on heroism. We're talking a lot about the heroism of, of the Ukrainians and what bravery is like. I, I tweeted out Vladimir Zelensky, the, the president of Ukraine's latest eight-minute speech. This guy's remarkable. He's a modern-day Churchill for his people. Day 14 of this existential battle with Russia as Russia thought they were going to sweep in and just destroy the Ukrainians and they underestimated Zelensky, they underestimated the Ukrainians, they underestimated the West and look, it's still a long and treacherous and brutal battle ahead but the heroism we're seeing is something extraordinary and I was reminded of you know, throughout life you're always looking for heroes. You're always looking for heroes and This morning, we got word, I was up at 4 a.m., and the reason I was up at 4 a.m., and and you might hear me cough throughout the day here, folks, because I have now tested positive for COVID. So my wife, my daughter, and now I, last night, felt sick, and so I'm I'm COVID positive, so I'm still home, and now I'm positive. So I got, uh, my, my daughter's on the mend, she's good, she's through, she's great, and again, Let's just say it, the triple vaccine has been life-saving. Life-saving. This has turned what could be a very scary situation into what is more like a flu for us. My wife, uh, she's doing better, immunocompromised, so she's got a little more difficult situation, more worried about her. And uh, I feel pretty good, you know, a little Tylenol, a little Advil, and and we're good. Um, So last night at 4 a.m., I'm up. Because I can't sleep anyway, but I can't sleep because of the COVID sitch. And the news breaks, and then this ties into heroism, that they, a film crew of scientists have discovered the shipwreck in the Antarctic of Ernest Shackleton's great ship, the Endurance, lost at sea 107 years ago. And this is the kind of crazy thing. I am, as you know, a, a, a nerd for adventure stuff, having been an editor-at-large for Outpost Magazine, a great, a great magazine that I urge you to read. The folks at Outpost are great. Uh, I did a bunch of egg, uh, expeditions led for Outpost and, and did some documentaries. Uh, one in search of the, the bones of the Franklin. Remember the Franklin voyage when the Erebus and Terror were sunk and everyone died? On the Franklin expedition. Remember, that's up in the Arctic. That was Franklin, and Franklin um, is 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 a great mystery. But he was a failure. Everyone died. Shackleton in the Antarctic is the very opposite. Ernest Shackleton is the greatest heroic story, and the story of the endurance is great. I remember uh, I was obsessed with this even when I met my wife. And, and in, when the first year I met her in 1999, she actually gave me the book, The Endurance, Shackleton's Legacy of the Antarctic by Caroline Alexander, which is a great book. I'd read many others before. Let me just set the scene and why this goes out. 
<coughs> as I cough here. In August of 1914, this is on the eve of the First World War, so think about the parallels. This renowned explorer, Ernest Shackleton, takes a crew of 27 men on the ship, the Endurance, and they're sailing to the Antarctic, and they want to be the first, uh, they want to get there and cross the Antarctic on foot, but they get stuck in what's called the Weddell Sea, okay? The Weddell Sea's sort of the north part of the Antarctic, let's say right below, you know, thousands of kilometers below, uh, let's say the tip of South America. And they get stuck there in the winter. And they get stuck there for close to 20 months. And their ship gets crushed by the ice. What's incredible about this is that the whole time, Shackleton and his incredible crew are taking films and photographs. And Shackleton knows the only way to, to, to actually make a living after this and to, to pay for this journey is if you publish books about it. So he's got Frank Hurley, his remarkable photographer, taking some of the most incredible shots of their life on the sea as they're stuck in the ice and their ship, the Endurance, is, is stuck. And then it gets crushed and it sinks. Okay? And it was just found perfectly preserved. Perfectly preserved. 107 years later, it is remarkable. But get this, it's in 10,000 feet of water. The story doesn't end there, and, and, I, and I want to tell you this story real quick. Ernest Shackleton takes essentially a rowboat, a rescue boat, and his crew, and they make way to something called Elephant Island, this inhospitable, crazy little place where they survive. And then Shackleton says, look, we're going to die here. No one's ever going to find us. The only way, the only way for us ever to get out of here after months is if I take an open boat with four guys and I sail 1,300 kilometers in what is roundly considered the greatest open boat voyage in history and I try to nail a tiny little whaling island where I know there's whalers off the tip of South America and I'm going to get there. And if we miss it, we're dead. And we only have enough supplies, only enough supplies for four weeks. Because if we don't hit this island in four weeks, we're going to die anyway. So he loads up this open boat and survives. Remember, this is the Drake Passage. This is by maybe the, the, the most difficult journey in history. And so he leaves Elephant Island. And he leaves most of his men there. And he makes his way to this incredible whaling island. This is incredible. They finally land there in a hurricane that sinks a 500-ton ship from Buenos Aires, the same storm. He lands on the other side. And what's even crazier is he has to then climb over. I mean, no one had climbed over this little island forever. He makes a 36-hour climb up this insane and he, uh, cliffs and mountains. He finally, in the South Georgia Island, he shows up and he's bearded. He's been gone for years. The world has changed. The British Empire has collapsed. And, and, and people say, who are you? And he famously says to these whalers who have no clue who he is, on shaky legs, half starving, I am Shackleton. And he immediately gets a boat, sails around the island, picks up his men on the other side of South Georgia Island, 
Then he gets back and he takes three attempts to save his men on Elephant Island because they can't get there because of the ice. And he finally does. And everyone survives. The greatest heroic mission. Ernst Shackleton dies at the age of 47. He was a great explorer. He wrote books about it. You should read The Endurance, Shackleton's legendary Antarctic expedition by Carolyn Alexander. And the Frank Hurley photographs are legendary. They found the endurance today. And we've tried to reach them, but they're still in the Antarctic. So, But we'll bring them on the show. And the reason I was thinking about that at 4 a.m. and tweeting about it was because acts of heroism and endurance are what we're seeing in Ukraine. Acts of heroism and endurance are what we've seen as we... as provinces are ending the mask mandate two years after this from our healthcare workers who showed remarkable endurance and courage. Now, my family's suffering from COVID, but we're safe because of the remarkable healthcare workers, the scientists who gave us the vaccines. We're safe because of the remarkable men and women who fought for our democracy and who are fighting on the front lines right now in Ukraine. And all those qualities of endurance community going above and beyond are embedded in Ernest Shackleton, who has become a legendary for leadership in hard times. So when you think of Zelensky today, 2022, or Shackleton, 1914, when he was when he left and he came back to a a world changed by war, we think of endurance. So today we got lots going on. we got heroism, but we're going to dig into the end of the mask mandate. Too soon or too late to find out next. Helping you through these unique times. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the program. Well, the mask mandate is dropped. As of March 21st, after the, pardon me, after the March break, and I'm going to just forgive me for coughing today. As you know, I've uh, contracted COVID. I'm positive. I, I'm feeling fine, but I got the odd cough. Just forgive me if I do that. Um, Ontario is lifting mandatory masking mandate March 21st for nearly all public indoor settings, including schools. I just asked one of my kids now, you know, my son's home because we're all uh, quarantined with COVID. He goes, I don't know, Dad, what do you think? I said, I don't know, but I'm going to ask Colin DeMello, CTV's Queen's Park Bureau Chief, to make sense of it. And so uh, we called up Colin, and he's here, and now you can answer all our questions. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing okay. I hope you're doing all right. Yeah, you know what? Uh, I, again, I keep saying to people, uh, the triple vaccination uh, really takes your anxiety and, and, and the impact of this. I know it's different for everyone, but it, it really takes it down from something you genuinely worry about to something that you just kind of get through. And it's... You know, not the end of the world at all. What's the deal with the um, public indoor mask settings uh, and masks in Toronto or rather in Ontario slash election time? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, it feels rather sudden, right? March 21st is the date that the chief medical officer of health says we're going to be removing masks in almost every setting. So any public indoor setting like a mall, a gym, a movie theater, uh, anything like that, you no longer have to wear a mask. But it will be a choice if you feel like, you know, you want to wear a mask just for your own personal uh, safety or, you know, just for your own state of uh, mind, you can still continue to wear that mask. 
it will stay in place for a lot of the vulnerable settings. So things like transit, hospitals, long-term care, congregate care settings, retirement homes, etc. Masks will remain in place. Now, on April 27th, Evan, that's when everything comes off. Like, there's not going to be any masking, no public health measures. Uh, the Reopening Ontario Act, which really was uh, how the government was managing all of these uh, closures legally, that will also come to an end. So every directive from the chief medical officer of health will cease to exist. So as of April 27th, that will be the first day in you know nearly two and a half years that we would be at our pre-pandemic normal. And, and I should mind, uh, remind you that April 27th is that date. May 4th is when the election campaign begins in Ontario. Oh, wow. That, that, that's just purely <laughs> coincidental. Um, but look, we do have high vaccination rates. We do have a lot of issues. Um, but here's let me just play you what um, Dr. Moore said today. Chris, I want to play uh, th- clip three. Uh, of Dr. Kieran Moore, who's the chief medical officer of health in Ontario, because he was asked, okay, like, I I mean, it's kind of ironic. Here I am literally in my basement after two years with COVID. And it was like, hey, it's all over. I'm like, well, not so fast. But here's what he said. In fact, we can expect indicators such as cases and hospitalizations to increase slightly as Ontario increases, increasingly interacts with one another. Oh, so so we're going to get increased cases. So what does that mean? Right. And that's exactly where we're seeing a lot of conflicting information. Right. He's saying on one hand, you know, the, the, the general risks from Omicron have severely decreased. But on the other hand, the province says, listen, we don't actually know the true spread of COVID-19 because we're not doing enough PCR testing. On one hand, the chief medical officer of health said today, oh, our cases are kind of low and our positivity numbers are stable. But, you know, last week he had said, well, whatever our case count is, you have to multiply it by 10. That's the estimate that we have. So we've got tens of thousands of cases uh, really on, on a daily basis. Uh, there are a number of um, you know, children's organizations from SickKids Hospital in Toronto to CHEO in Ottawa who said, listen, wait for two weeks after March break to start lifting the masking requirements. And Dr. Moore says, well, you know, there can be a difference of opinion in the medical community, but we can still be, you know, go forward. And, and here's the key. I mean, you know, Dr. Moore said two things that stood out to me. One, that the pandemic is still not over. He says we are still in, we're not in the endemic stage of the virus. We're still in the pandemic stage of the virus, which is concerning. And the other thing was I asked him directly, so what is the doctor who's giving this advice to 15 million people going to do himself when he goes out into the public, if he goes to a mall, etc.? And Dr. Moore says he's going to, if he's outdoors, he won't wear his mask anymore. But if he's indoors, he says he'll make his own you know, health assessment. And he says he will most likely wear a mask on transit. He will wear a mask at a mall and he will wear a mask at a big box store. So I guarantee you a lot of teachers and parents are saying, well, if you're going to wear those masks in all those places and you're not necessarily, you know, in a small room with 30 other people, why are you telling parents or students to remove their masks inside of a classroom? The majority of which, I should say, mm. don't have their second dose just yet, or a lot of them don't even have one dose. Yeah. And so so what has been the response to this from, you know, teachers, unions and others? 
Well, a lot of them are saying that the, the province seems to be moving too fast. In fact, a lot of infectious diseases specialists and um, epidemiologists are saying that same thing, that the province is perhaps moving a little bit too quickly. Uh, you know, we are only about, what, nine days after we had the wide open reopening with no more uh, proof of vaccination, full capacity limits, etc. And so a lot of them are pleading with the government, why don't you just wait for a little bit? Um, the Children's Health Coalition that I just mentioned, uh, CHEO and, and Sick Kids and others, uh, they're saying, listen, our recommendation is you still continue to wear masks inside right. the classroom and school settings. They're saying, you know, we would have preferred at least two weeks after March break. And there's a reason for that. Traditionally, throughout the entire pandemic, Evan, every time students have left the school setting, whether it's for March break, for Christmas break, there's always been a heightened level of concern when they come back. Because when they come back, they don't know how many people have they interacted with, where have they gone, have they gone overseas, have they uh, you know, gone to camps or you know, seen a bunch of family members, what are they tracking back into the school? And so after these kinds of breaks, you know, that was when we traditionally saw an extension of school closures. But now kids are going to be coming back. They're not going to be wearing masks, or at least that's the provincial um, uh, guidelines. And all of the other public health measures, like taking the temperature at the door, screening students at the door, that, too, is going to be lifted. So schools and everything else in society as of March 21st, with some limited ex- exceptions, is really going back to pre-pandemic times. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Um, the, the premier was asked today um, if the science advisory table was consulted and basically if there was political pressure on them. Um, here's what Doug Ford said about that. Check this out. Let me be very clear. There's uh, no pressure on Dr. Moore. I follow the advice and the recommendations of the chief medical officer of Ontario. He consults with a science table and we're going to take his advice. So what do you make of that? I'm speaking to Colin DeMello, our, our, our bureau chief and CTV bureau chief at Queen's Park. I mean, the well, timing, I mean, like, like the t- it's hard to ignore the fact that there's a giant election elephant in the room here. Right. And, I, and I'll say this. The premier might say, you know, that there's no pressure being put on Dr. Moore from his part. And we have no evidence that there's been any, you know, internal pressure or internal demand that, you know, masks are lifted by a certain date. However, over a series of news conferences, the premier has expressed quite openly his, his, his desire to see masks lifted. He, a few weeks ago, had mentioned after March break, even before the chief medical officer of health had mentioned it. So whether or not there is pressure, there is certainly an understanding of what the premier and the government wants. And, and the chief medical officer of health has always said this, that he can only make a recommendation, but the decision finally lies with the premier. And so instead of having an internal battle, you know, the thought might be just make the recommendation that the government wants to see. Um, but when it comes to the election timelines, I, of, of course, you, you can't ignore it, right? April 27th is when every public health measure is listed. The government will most likely want to go into an election, you know, declaring victory of some sorts over COVID-19. Uh, you know, the premier has talked about, has tapped really into a lot of this frustration that people have with the public health measures and acknowledging that a lot of people want to just move forward. And so the government seems to have found itself with this, you know, perfect kind of scenario, which Omicron is spreading. A lot of the population has two doses, three doses, hospitalizations and ICU numbers are down. So now might be the time. But you're absolutely right. I mean, coming into this election, 
a lot of the opposition are going to be talking about the past two years. Look at what happened to long-term care, government mismanagement during COVID-19. And the premier is going to say, listen, COVID-19 is now in the past. We are looking squarely at and, and And you know what? I don't know how many people want to crank their neck and look backwards, but we'll find out. <coughs> uh, Colin DeMello, uh, Queen's Park PR Chief. Thanks, man. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks. Be well, Evan. Yeah, you too. Uh, the Minister of Natural Resources is next. From coast to coast to coast, the newsmakers talk here. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Justin Trudeau has promised that he will help Europe wean itself off Russian energy. Russia's main weapon in this war, just to be clear, is the reliance of Europe and especially Germany, where the prime minister is today, on their liquefied natural gas, 40% of it. And now that Joe Biden and, 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 and the EU, like the UK, is going to ban Russian oil imports, Canada doesn't import any. How significant is it? What can Canada actually do, right? Remember, we export 52% of all U.S. total petroleum imports come from Canada, 61% of crude imports. So this is significant. We're, we're the big. But how do we, we help Europe? I asked the... Uh, Minister of Natural Resources, Jonathan Wilkinson, he's in Houston at an energy conference. Is the federal government doing anything first to ease the price of gas at the pump? Like one option is a GST rebate. Another option, delay the increase of the carbon price this year. Sir, are either of these on the table to help consumers? I would say a few things. I mean, the first is uh, clearly what is going on in Ukraine has uh, had a big impact on energy markets, and it is a humanitarian tragedy, um, that first and foremost. And we all need to be acting in a way to try to stabilize global energy markets. It is something that certainly I and my American colleague with whom I'm meeting in the next hour or so, um, as well as uh, IEA ministers, International Energy Agency ministers, are talking about on an ongoing basis. That That is the most important thing that we can do to try to bring prices back down to, uh, to a more affordable level. Clearly, we need to be thinking about affordability going forward, as this government has over the course of the past number of years in terms of, you know, the work that we've done in housing and child care and the Canada Child Benefit. Um, but we're going to obviously be thinking about anything that we can do with respect to affordability. The one thing I would say to you, though, Evan, is, I mean, the second one that you put uh, put on the table there, which is uh, the carbon price. I mean, look, the majority of Canadian families get more money back in the context of the carbon price than they pay. Um, and so that would actually be a regressive move for those people who actually are being hurt most by the price going up. Well, well, that that's in the provinces that the federal government has a backstop, not in provinces like BC where they're paying two bucks, as you know. Um, but just, just on that affordability, and then I want to get back to trying to uh, loosen up the tight markets and, and maybe increasing supply. But is your government considering, and this is, goes back 20 years, as you know, potentially a GST rebate on gas for consumers? Look, our, our government is, is considering all kinds of things to try to ensure that we are addressing the affordability issue. As I've said, we've acted in that manner for the past number of years. But this, this we, we have to be, be clear. I mean, this is an international issue that is caused by a war that has been, caused, been driven by, by Mr. Putin. 
Um, and we clearly need to do two things. We need to look at how we can increase supply such that the markets um, have available supply, um, even in the context of some of the actions that, for example, the UK and, and uh, the United States took today. But we also have to give certainty to the markets. Part of what the problem here is certainty. And so working with our counterparts, I'm in Paris in two weeks to do exactly this with IEA ministers, is to ensure that folks are understand that there is a plan here and um, and that we, you know, people can have comfort that uh, that access to energy supplies are going to continue to to exist such right. that we can calm these markets down. Okay, but you know, access may be there, but the price. So we go back to affordability. So the carbon price is going to go up, but you may you, you may take other measures. We don't know what they are. Let, let's go to the supply, because the prime minister today, when he was in Latvia, said, look, Canada will step up to help EU deal with uh, their energy needs now that they're trying to wean themselves off, off Russia. I get it. Um, but your government announced an extra 40 days to examine uh, the Bay de Nord offshore oil project uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador. That would be 200,000 barrels a day when complete. Um, we have one half-built LNG project in Kitimat, as you know, um, and the government has rejected others. For example, the Quebec Energy Saguenay liquefied natural gas export in the Saguenay region. We know that. So how exactly could your government help Europe? Like, where is that energy going to come from? Sure. So there's there's two pieces to this. The first is the short term issues, and the second are sort of the medium and longer term issues. I, I was at a meeting of IEA ministers uh, last week, where I will tell you every European minister said we need to get off Russian natural gas and oil um, and do it very quickly. Initially, by replacing those supplies. But in the medium and longer term, we need to accelerate the drive towards renewable energy and hydrogen. And we need to ensure that we are expediting that such that we actually have sovereignty and energy security going forward. Um, I think that Canada is looking at anything that it can do in the short term. As you say, there are constraints um, for, for Canada. But in the medium and the longer term, there are some real opportunities here to, to help our European friends. And, and those are not just in the form of, of perhaps LNG, but they also are very much in the form of hydrogen, which is where Europe wants to transition to and wants to transition to as quickly as they possibly can. I, I, look, I get the timelines. LNG is a is a medium to long term. It's you know billions and billions of dollars. But, but sir, to be fair, Germany's saying we need LNG. Did Canada miss the window on LNG? Seven years ago, there were 18 LNG projects being proposed in Canada. Um, we built, as I said, Kitimat. In that period of time, the U.S. has built seven. They are currently building five more. They've approved, I think, even more than that already. Uh, did Canada miss the boat on this? And has our did we regulate the LNG industry in Canada to death? And now we can't really help Europe because of it. No, not at all. Um, you know, I think that uh, we have looked at the LNG business. And as you said, that there is a large scale LNG facility that's being built by LNG Canada in Kitimat. Um, we are focused, though, on the longer term, which is um, LNG is a transitional fuel. Um, you cannot continue to burn natural gas as we move towards a, natural, uh, a net zero future. And so you need to think about how you actually make that transition. That may well be in the context of helping Europe reduce its dependence on Russian natural gas by supplying LNG, which is a transition to hydrogen, whether that's produced from natural gas here in Canada or produced from, from natural gas in, in Europe. But those are exactly the conversations that we are uh, having right now. And, uh, and I would tell you that but, but our, our European friends are very, very interested and engaged in that conversation. 
but but okay, so so we'll can't. I'm just trying to. You know, speed matters. They're, they're talking about a a weaning off of mainly of of 40 percent of Russian LNG by this year. They're talking about 100 percent weaning off well before 2030. Like, is Canada in the game on this? Or are you? Sir, I'm just asking a serious question. Are you saying, look, LNG is transitional. It's mid to long term. We're not going to do anything like that. Uh, we'll just wait to see this pass, but the strategic needs for oil security are now. Give us a short-term strategy that Canada is engaged in to help get Europe off the dependency of Russian energy. So, Evan, I would tell you that we are looking at every opportunity that we have to help Russia, whether it's with oil or gas, through through devottlenecking of pipelines. To help Europe, you mean? Through, you help, through, sorry, you said Russia. I just want to make sure I'm hearing sorry, you. I'm sorry to help Europe. You said Russia. Uh, and you our mean, European colleagues, you mean Europe. uh, through, through potentially devottlenecking of pipelines, through uh, the potential to accelerate uh, LNG development in a couple of different areas but always in the frame that Europe puts it in, which is it has to fit within the frame of the fact that we're not just facing an energy security crisis, we still are facing a climate crisis. And at the end of the day, the decisions that we make um, have to actually fit within the, both of those envelopes. That's the same way that Germany approaches it, the same way the United Kingdom approaches it, the same way that France approaches it. And those are the exact constructive conversations that we are having and we are gonna to continue to have over the next few weeks. Oh, okay, and, and I appreciate that, but, but the Russian invasion of Ukraine must change the calculation. You, you can't use the same math formula when the numbers have changed. Like, doesn't something have to change now that Russia has invaded Ukraine and Europe has made the remarkable decision to cancel Nord Stream 2 and to, and to say no to Russian energy? That's a totally different uh, accelerated timeline, isn't it? It absolutely is, but I will come back to what I said to you before, which is the European ministers, and I've spoken to all of them <laughs> um, uh, through through the course of the IEA discussions. Yes, there is an immediate near-term need simply to drop in replacements of Russian oil and gas, but but the acceleration of the energy transition is the primary focus of where they are going. They want to actually have control of their future from an energy perspective, and so they are very much going to be looking at renewables and hydrogen on an accelerated basis going mm -hmm. forward in part to meet their energy security requirements, in part because they recognize that they cannot abandon their climate goals. I mean, at the end of the day, that's an, just as existential a threat as, as the energy security crisis that is affecting them today. And so it, Canada agrees, and Canada wants to do everything it can to help the Europeans. Natural Resources Minister Wilkinson will be right back. Sorting through the changes, here's Evan Solomon. Welcome to the program. The Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg. Forgive me as I uh, do my little COVID cough. Jens Stoltenberg spoke at a defense, the Ottawa Conference on Security today. It's a three-day conference going on in Ottawa. He spoke virtually. He met with the Prime Minister, as you know, in Latvia, Yesterday, prime ministers in Germany with the defense minister and the foreign affairs minister, <coughs> pardon me, and the um, and the finance minister. But he warned today, Jens Stoltenberg, that if Russia attacks any NATO country, that would, of course, trigger Article 5. An attack on one is an attack on any. Uh, that has been the line of defense, and that's been the reason why NATO countries will not 
put boots on the ground or jets in the air over Ukraine, despite the fact that the Ukrainians are desperate for air support. There was a strange offer yesterday that Poland had offered all their MiG-29s, two squadrons, to fly them to an American base in Germany, and then the Americans would somehow get them into Ukraine. And the Americans rejected that. But the first guy I spoke to that said, this is not right. That could be an error. It was on power play last night. And it was before we'd heard the Pentagon's response to this weird offer was uh, retired Major General Dave Fraser. And he's, a, of course, decorated military officer, first general to command American troops in combat since the Second World War. Uh, and uh, General Fraser joins us now. Thanks for your service, uh, General Fraser. Dave, uh, and you said to me, if... NATO flies these MiG-29s from Poland in somehow. Uh, this could be NATO's first big mistake of the war. T- tell me about this Polish offer and why it was rejected. Well, all politics are domestic, and uh, Poland wanted to get rid of lesser equipment to get newer equipment from the United States uh, because they're concerned about in, you know uh, Russia coming across their border. I get it. But then they should dump these uh, aircraft onto the United States and expect them to somehow figure out how to get them into Ukraine was a non, non, non-starter because Putin said uh, he's okay with uh, everyone supplying Ukraine with, with weapons, but it did not include airplanes. And Putin has been true to his word. When he has threatened to do something, he has done it. And this was certainly an escalation. And, you know, senior heads prevailed and the United States said, no. So I'm trying to understand that, though. So so Paul, I just want people to know Poland is a member of NATO. I think in 1999 they joined. So it's okay for the United States and to use Poland, which has about a 350 kilometer shared border with Ukraine, to use that as the main entrance point for Stinger missiles, (coughs) anti-tank weaponry billions of dollars of weapons to fight the Russians, but not fighter jets? Like, how does that work? Well, it's, and here is the odd math of warfare. Uh, And everybody does it. Everybody supplies everyone else with munitions to go and prosecute wars. Uh, But there's a line which, how much is, is too much? And for Putin, we found out that MiGs are probably too much. Uh, and that and that is why, you know, I think the Americans made the assessment, notwithstanding what uh, Poland wants, this would actually inflame Putin. And in there, no way are we going to have a war that expands beyond the confines of Ukraine, because instead of like two million refugees, we could have 20 plus million refugees. But, but I'm and just that's trying not to, what anyone wants. But Dave, uh, retired uh, <coughs> Major General Fraser, it's weird, right? The MiGs yeah. are Russian aircraft sold yeah. years ago from Russia to Poland. Like, you know, Poland at one point was part of the Warsaw Pact. Then 1991, Soviet Union breaks up. And then eventually, eight years later, they join NATO. I understand all that. But these are Russian planes. So so they can't send them. You can send anything else but not air superiority. Uh, but Ukraine already has an air force, and they're using MiGs, right? So here's the other way to look at it. We haven't heard much about what the Ukrainian Air Force has done. And the fact that Zelensky's asked for airplanes suggests either their airplanes are gone or broken and they need more airplanes. And so, you know, 
Putin doesn't seem to be too concerned about losing tanks or vehicles to any tank weapons, but he seems really concerned that a MiG-29 is flying around Ukraine going after his S-400 air defense systems or his other ground uh, assets, and he doesn't want that to happen. And so in the other way of looking at it, a MiG-29 can reach deep into the rear areas of uh, the Russian lines, much more so than ground forces, and he doesn't want that either. Mm. But, I mean, this to me, I'm just trying to calibrate it. I, I'm with you. Um, and I, your analysis, I, I, I would 100% agree with. You put NATO jets in the air, then this, you know, some no-fly zone. This is automatically an escalation. You're in a hot war with Russia because they have air defenses. They shoot, you shoot back, and suddenly NATO forces are in a direct engagement with Russia. And this thing metastasizes uh, exponentially. I understand that, Dave Fraser. But by the same token, th- however badly this has gone in 14 days for Putin, you know, you know his 60-kilometer-long his convoy heading towards Kiev, he knows he doesn't want MiGs bombing that thing because it's vulnerable, but however long it's taken, it's going to get there in the end, right? Yeah, but right now Putin is saying, I don't want those planes here. And the United States has made an assessment, no matter how they get them there, it's going to inflame Putin. And the other thing is, this is this campaign is going really bad for Putin. He gets more dangerous every day that this thing doesn't uh, get resolved to his satisfaction. So why give him, pardon the pun, ammunition for him to do something even more radical than what he's already done? This this gets much worse before it gets better. And um, on this one. Nobody wants nobody wants us to escalate this because here's the other thing: you cannot control war. War takes its own path, however it is, as much as you like to. And there's Putin; he's had a campaign plan, and it's not going the way he thought. Speaking of retired Major General Fraser, and those are about as wise words as, as you say. As soon as the battle starts, the plan goes out the window, and you've seen it firsthand yourself. Um, what are you looking for next? I mean, I don't want, there's so much fog of war. The Ukrainians have been remarkable, but it doesn't mean that the Russians still can't win this thing. They have time, they have weapons, they have capacity on their side. Um, what are you looking for next from a military side, Dave Fraser? A race of logistics now. As the battle of attrition carries on, the logistics, who can outsupply the other, will actually gain the upper hand here. And Russia has taken on the most difficult military operation, and it's called urban warfare, which sucks up troops and time and resources. Do they have a supply chain that can that can deal with that? And at the other side of the house is, do the Ukrainians have a supply chain to keep the Russians at bay like they've been doing? It's going to be who can outlast the other. And who can bomb those supply chains? Let me tell you, if Russia starts trying to come west and bomb supply chains from Poland... That's also dangerous. And we should look for an incursion from Belarus. There are certain check, check, uh, choke points on the supply chain into Ukraine. And, you know, that's the other thing I'll be looking for is um, if the Russian supply chain gets weak, they're going to go after the Ukrainian one. And that means Belarus, perhaps. Uh, thanks for your service. You're wise. By the way, the bombing of this children's hospital in southern Mariupol, one of the most disgraceful acts of this war so far. General Fraser, thank you. We've got our war room panel next. Stay with us.
listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the program, everybody. It is time to get the gang together for the war room. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. The war room. You know, there is a war going on, so we use that term advisedly. Tom O'Care, CTV's political analyst, former leader of the NDP. He's been in political battles. Uh, Zane Valji, a political campaign strategist and former uh, partner at Northweather. He's worked on campaigns for the Calgary mayor and the Alberta NDP leader, uh, Rachel Notley. And back from her almost sojourn into the political wilderness, she may go back, <laughs> back after, well, taking her hat from the closet and keeping it on her head, not throwing it in the ring. Tasha Carradine, principal with Navigator, national political columnist for Post Media and almost candidate for the leadership of the Conservative Party. Welcome back, Tasha. Oh, thanks. Welcome Tasha. back. Great. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Great to be here. <laughs> Tasha's back, and and we're going to start there. Look, we're going to get to Ukraine um, because the situation obviously very dire there. But I but because we expect tomorrow Jean Charest, the former um, Liberal Premier of Quebec, but former leader of the very small version of the Progressive Conservative Party, uh, Tash, you decided not to run. You were on the program yesterday talking about it. Um, but we've got Leslie Lewis, Pierre Polyever. Tomorrow we'll likely get. Jean Charest, and maybe we'll find out if we get Patrick Brown in. Um, but boy, the race is already shaping up to be uh, Jean Charest's a liberal. He's not a conservative. And the, the Pierre Polyevre camp, it seems well ahead. What, what's your, when he announces tomorrow, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I think people are going to realize that there's a real race going on. And I think that they're going to realize that it's, it's a, it's a battle for winning the next election. That's really what this whole race is about and should be about it's not about tearing down the other candidates it should be about okay how do we best win in the next election and sheree has a plan to win um you know he wants a party that's built to win and it's i think that it actually that was uh, one of the reasons i was interested too but i think that he really encapsulates that he's got a track record on it and he's going to talk about the issues that matter to all canadians he's, i mean he's going to be in calgary that speaks volumes right there you know the west matters a great deal to him he realizes that there's Western alienation and that people feel that they've been hard done by and he wants to address that. So I think you'll hear quite a bit of unity talk from him. I won't scoop it, but we'll hear some of that tomorrow. Well, uh, it's it's happening tomorrow. Jean Chiret. Tom, you've known this for a while. You predicted this. What's your sense of I mean, Pierre polyevre has got, you know, he, he he's owning the inflation issue. He's got the endorsements. He's been data mining since the Freedom Trucker point of view um some people think he's locked this thing up w what is the hill to climb for jean charret well charret's numbers are actually quite low in his home province of quebec uh, most recent polling shows him at about the same level of support as the quebec liberal party right now that he used to head up which is at about 20 percent people in quebec also know it's a little bit less known outside because people have a fond memory of him fighting hard in the referendum, holding up his passport. They remember him as the tousle-haired uh, young environment minister. But he's um, he's got a big piece of rope dragging along a bunch of clanging casseroles behind his campaign car right now. And those are ethical, and they have to do with integrity of his government. It's not because they've decided not to have 
not to continue the criminal investigation or eventual prosecution, but there aren't a lot of ethical questions that he's going to have to answer. But given the fact that he is at 20 percent, believe it or not, that's an advantage with the system that they have in the Conservative Party, because of the 78 seats in Quebec, he's going to be able to go and get a whole bunch of them. There's 100 points allocated per riding, and it's based on your percentage of votes. He's not going to have trouble selling memberships in every riding in Quebec. So the small group around Pierre Poilievre in Quebec, even though his French is decent and he understands most of the, the province better than, than a lot of other politicians, he's still in a very difficult position. He's got one senator named Carignan, another one named Leo Pusakos, who will be out there, but they don't have an infrastructure or a history. I know a lot of people personally who were in the Liberal Party of Quebec who have followed and helped Trudeau in the last three elections who are going to go and help Charette. So this is this is an interesting change right yeah. now, and it's going to be one whether we, we'll see whether or not Shadak can pull this off. Okay, but but Zane, what, what are there? I think um, seventy-five seats in Quebec right now. Am I, am I off the top? My COVID 78. brain. Seventy-eight. Seventy-eight. Yeah, seventy-eight, 78 seats. Yeah, after the allocation, yeah. seventy-eight seats in Quebec. Mm-hmm. Like, does that maybe that's his battleground? That's his base. What else does he have to do to win? Like, where else does he have to pull in memberships? Well, the Ontario uh, battleground is going to be the f- most most important one. And this is where the Patrick Brown entrant uh, is going to be quite interesting. I know for many, it's an afterthought. Patrick Brown, that guy. Well, you know, having talked to a lot of organizers, especially in the South Asian community, they say hands down, regardless of political stripe, Patrick Brown is one of the most formidable organizers they have seen in that community and overall. So mm. he is no good. It's going to be no shrinking violet. And I think that that battleground of Ontario, Ontario is going to be really interesting to see who can take it there. The Calgary move is interesting. And I want to just jump on what Tom said here with Sheree launching in Calgary tomorrow. I got, I've gotten emails from half a dozen folks in my neighborhood here in Calgary uh, in, in conservative circles, which you can suspect, uh, you know, it dominates a lot of the, the political conversation here, who I thought were in the can for Polly Ever have said, you know, I'm joining Sheree. Mm-hmm. I'm there tomorrow night. I'm going to be here. And that's intriguing to me because the conversation that's going on right now, I think is it, it's a bit of a lazy one, which is that Sheree is the electable one. Polyevra is the one for a uh, a more narrow casting version of the Conservative Party. What I think is interesting is that Sheree is probably someone who's going to come out being more conservative than, let's say, liberals and progressives like me expect he's going to be. But there's also the argument on the Polyevra side that it's not about he wants to build a party that is more pure and doesn't win they actually think that populist pathway is the pathway to victory. And I think that's where we have to be very careful when addressing Polyevra as, as someone who simply wants to build a more pure, less flip-floppy uh, you know, party. They genuinely feel like this is the pathway to victory. So it's going to be interesting to see if that charade argument of built to win actually draws muster when more and more people mm-hmm. are jumping onto Polyevra, not just as a purity exercise, but as an exercise to actually take uh, the, the, the reins of power in government. Well, you said what? purity exercise, and, mm-hmm. and I'll go back to Tash. One of the, the measures in the Conservative Party is they, they do these kind of purity tests. One of them has mm-hmm. been the carbon tax, right? You got a cap-and-trade system installed by Charest. Pat Brown, if he comes in, of course, he was very much in favor on a price on carbon. Uh, and, and Pierre Polyever's like, I'm rolling all that stuff back that Aaron O'Toole put in. Is that a real uh, battleground for the party? 
You know, I think that Mr. Sheree is going to develop an energy and environment policy that he will flesh out in the coming, uh, probably I would say days, but weeks, months, uh, whenever. But um, there's certain things he's already set markers down on that actually uh, dovetail with what Pierre Polio says. He would repeal Bill C-48 and C-69. He believes in greater exports of our energy. You know, we are talking about that with regard to Ukraine uh, probably later on the show here, but it's something that's actually on his list of things to do. He very much believes that, yeah, we should get to net zero, but we got to be realistic. It's going to take about 30 years to get to net zero. And in the meantime, we need to develop Canadian energy sources, but of all kinds, not just the oil patch, but critical minerals and, and other things as well. So he's going to have a formidable view on that. And I think that sort of big picture holistic view um, will be much more appealing than simply saying that Alberta's hard done by and everyone is against it. It's it, it really the politics to me of positivity versus negativity. And if you want to bank on the politics of rage and anger and protest, that's the populist view. Right. It does not lead you to good places. Tom, boy, when you share environment, Tom Mulcair, you might have something mm. to say here, Tom. <laughs> well, it's interesting because it is, an, yeah, of course. I mean, Share, I mean, he wanted to, you know, sell off a part of a provincial park called Mount Orford to private developers for condos. And when I wouldn't sign the order in council because it was illegal, um, he said he would move me to another ministry. I said, no, that's fine. And I just left cabinet on that question of principle. So that's the type of thing. And that's, by the way, I want our listeners to know, uh, we, I know we have a minute here that Tom's just gliding over what was at the moment a monumental moment. And, and that will come up. So what I want to do, I, I got to take a break because I don't want to shorten this because I got 30 seconds. Tom, I'm going to come back to you on this sure. because your battle with Sheree over that was a sign of, first of all, what, what you did. And then you, of course, you end up leaving and then you become the leader. Uh, then you, you join the NDP and then you become the leader of the party. Like, it, you know, that, that was the beginning of an extraordinary journey for you. But it's very telling about Sheree. So we're going to talk more about yes. that. And then we'll talk about energy. And can Canada do anything? to help Europe's dependency on Russian oil. That's next. Making sense of the latest news. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. I am back with The War Room with Zane Veljitash, Keratin, and Tom Mulcair. We will talk about, can Canada do anything to help Europe wean itself off Russian energy. That, that, that is one of the key strategic weapons in this battle. But speaking of energy, um, Tom Mulcair and climate, Tom Mulcair, the CTV political analyst and former NDP leader who's here, was in the midst. He obviously worked in the Jean Charest government. Jean Charest is going to announce he's going to run for the conservative leadership tomorrow, it looks like, Tom. But when you were his minister, I guess, of the environment, um, um, you had a break with Jean Charest. I just want you people to, I know you're glossing over it, but it was, a, it was a fundamental break. And I wonder if it's telling about Mr. Charest and, and what this will mean for his campaign. Tom. Well, it is a bit telling about Mr. Charest because there were always developers and people with interests, not members of government, who were always gravitating around Charest and around the decision-making process. In this case, it was some developers who wanted to get their hands on lands that were in what we call a national park, i.e. provincial park, but in Quebec they're called national parks. This one is called Mount Orford uh, Provincial Park. It's a big one, very, very magnificent area in the eastern townships. And, you know, looking at the legislation, I said, well, no, it's still purposed as a park and it's there in perpetuity. And no, we, we can't turn that land over to private interests. And 
when I refused to sign the order in council, I was basically given this sort of Hobson's choice. We're going to send you to another ministry. So somebody else was signed it. I said, no, I'd rather not be around the cabinet table when that takes place. So the first thing they did once I left cabinet is they got my successor to sign off on this thing. And they um, eventually paid the full political price, but had to back down because there was a huge public outcry in the province of Quebec against the government, allowing private developers to get their hands on a provincial park. And that was one of the things about Charette. He would often pay the full political price for things because he was headstrong and he was listening to the people around him, the developers and the people with private interests, and he would push and push and push on his cabinet ministers. And then when he would pay the full political price, he was sometimes forced to back down. There was a big natural gas project to produce electricity called the Sowa. They were forced to back down on that. The Rabaska project for liquid natural gas across from Quebec City, that eventually did not go through because of the change in the price of gas in North America, but mostly it was another total mess when the whole community and everybody who cares about the environment was up in arms. Now, Chalet has one thing in his favor going into this fight with Trudeau is that according to Canada's own Commissioner of Environment and Sustainable Development, we have had the worst record in the G7 since Mr. Trudeau came to power. So I love listening to Wilkinson and I, I've known Stephen Gilbar, our environment minister for decades. They're both fantastic people. Keep your eye on, in ending, I'll give you 15 seconds. Keep your eye on Bejinal, Newfoundland Labrador Petroleum Play, $12 billion project. Keep your eye on Energy Sagni. That was liquefied mm. natural gas that was destined for Germany. The feds have said no to it. Watch if those projects don't come back online. It would mean that it would be impossible for Canada to meet its obligations under the Paris Climate Accord. But it could be for Mr. Trudeau an excellent way of saying, oh, I know I'm not going to meet my targets in the short term. But it's all for a good cause. It's to help our allies in Europe. Yeah. Stay tuned. Hey, I, That's what mm. you're going to be hearing. Can I get in here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, go, yeah. Tash, can get in there. But I would just I, say... I remember th- this, too, a whole thing in Quebec about the park. And if I remember, um, in fact, if anything this says, is that Mr. Shuri actually is in favor of smart development. Because at the time, they wanted to put these condos there. Because there's a ski hill that was also very popular, never mind just the park, the ski hill, that was losing money. And the operators were threatening to shut it down. And this is a way they were going to double the size of the park, if I recall, and put the condos in. But they were going to increase the size of the park to compensate for it. And because this thing fell apart, a couple of years later, the provincial government had to take over the ski hill and find a new owner for it. Because basically the, the, the owners were going to bail. And that was part of the rationale for actually developing the site because it wasn't sustainable. And, and you ask Quebecers, they love to ski, right, too. So it, this, if anything, this shows that Cherie actually, and for the environmental stuff and the LNG projects that that Tom referenced, will show actually people in the Conservative Party who are skeptical that he's not, you know, in favor of natural resources. It's the opposite. It will actually play in his favor because okay. it shows, you know what, he tried to get projects oh, done. He's actually in favor uh, of exploration. Okay, I, I don't want to get too deep to... into the, the to the, Mount, the the Orford Park uh, uh, rabbit hole Tom here. And I know, <laughs> I know, no, I did. I know I did. But, but I, I do want to get on the larger picture here. Because just for time, and, and Zane, I, maybe you could dovetail both of these. Because energy and, and the environment, I just had the, the uh, former environment minister and, and the current natural resource minister, Wilkinson, on. Look, the world is facing an energy security crisis. And there's a big question about how does Canada have a role, whether it's liquefied natural gas, as Tom just mentioned in the Saguenay, a project both Quebec and the federal government recently rejected. Uh, what does it do? Does it have any capacity to do anything to fill the gap if, if the world tries to wean itself off Russian oil? And Zane, go for it. 
Yeah, I mean, yes and no, the answer is, right? You you hear Wilkinson say that LNG is transitional, that the bigger crisis here is not the energy insecurity. It's the a long arc of history around ensuring that we transition and the climate crisis. Uh, it's a tough one here for Canada because, yes, there are projects. If you wanted to accelerate pipelines like Michael Chong is suggesting, that's possible. If you want the Newfoundland Labrador projects that Andrew Fury is suggesting, that's possible. If you're Jason Kenney and you're hand-fistedly talking about any project in Alberta that you can accelerate, it's possible. But the question is, does, is it something that Europe actually wants? Or is Europe actually focused on reducing their overall dependency? And so the question is, for many of the pro-oil leaders in, in, in Canada, I think this gives good cloud cover to a, a couple of projects that they want to champion and to double down. I think it's going to raise alarm bells with those uh, on the climate side. But it, it speaks a lot to this federal government, which is it's showcasing their lack of agility. Right. We've talked for a long time, despite Tash Tom and I having different political stances, that the Trudeau government needed to do something on cost of living. For months we were talking about mm -hmm. it. And now that it's on our shores, and now that it's internationally on, on, on different shores, uh, they're flat-footed. And so the thing is that this government has a real tough uh, political uh, you know, tightrope to walk on, which is, do they sacrifice their long-term vision? And everything this government has done has been about the long or medium term. We've talked about this in the past. Their short-term thinking and short-term strategic execution is poor. Do they do anything to give up the long and medium term to do anything short term? It's really tough. And what you're seeing by Wilkinson and other comments is they're not going to do it, especially doubling down on the fact that, listen, Europe wants to reduce their dependency. We're not going to jump in. But this gives a massive political opportunity to folks like Jason Kenney and others to keep banging and banging on the federal government for their lack of agility and their lack of focus in a time where Canadians, but also our allies in Europe, need yeah. it the most. But there is no, Tom, is there? Is there a short-term solution? LNG plants are five to ten years away in billions of dollars. We've only got one. The U.S. is the largest exporter of LNG now. They they hit the window in the last seven years. We didn't. Uh, two, it's not like Energy East pipeline is going to happen. That's years in the making. Two, uh, so so what can Canada do uh, for Europe? Like it's not like we could send send stuff to Germany right now. Well, Canada could be ramping up, but then it comes at the cost that Zane just described. I mean, any talk of meeting our Paris Accord obligations goes out the window if we approve Beijing and if we approve any other projects like Energy Saguenay, which was this big liquefied natural gas pipe up the Saguenay River in Quebec, bringing in LNG, bringing in natural gas and liquefying it from, from Western Canada. And this is the thing. Which, which of those two versions do we want? We talk about Build Back Better. It's a great slogan. But at, as we come out of the pandemic, are we going to use all of our creativity, the ability to innovate, to put in place green, renewable, clean sources of energy for electricity? Or are we going to just go back to drill, baby, drill? And yeah. is that going to be the solution wow. that we come up with? And that's the most interesting societal conversation is do we as as citizens of this country go back to the warm blanket that is cheap energy every any time we're thrown off course to a longer arc? It's, it's an open question. Well, I think, though, you have to also look at the downstream impact because if, if Europe is not buying its LNG is not buying its oil from Russia, then Russia is not exporting it to them. Um, emissions may go up here in terms of producing the fuel, but overall, and this is where Canada always gets gets caught in a bind, we produce the oil. We are not a huge emitting country ourselves. We are accused of, oh, well, you know, you have emissions, you have to meet your, par your Paris targets, you're not meeting them. I get that. But at the same time, the net contribution, when you consider that they will be using oil from a different source, 
isn't it the same? We bear the greater cost of, of production, yes, but it would go down in Russia comparatively uh, if they're not selling it. So, uh, you know, I think this is – Ukraine's in a war. Europe I, is faced with the possibility of war. We need to do our part, too. Yeah, how fast. Okay, Zane, Tash, Tom. Wow, what a, what a, what a time. Thanks, all three of you. Uh, tomorrow, Charade. Charade jumps in tomorrow. We'll have more coverage of that. We've got to take a short break. We'll be right back. As your world changes, we adapt to get your answers. Now more with Evan Solomon. I want to start with, is this the worst act of war so far? A children's hospital and a hospital in Mariupol, the city, has been bombed by the Russians. Uh, it, it is... The damage we don't know yet. It was a maternity hospital, according to the authorities in Mariupol, which is a city on the coast. Children killed. This the 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 video of this maternity and children's hospital is devastating. Okay, the Russians are pounding this city, and an attack like this is. Um, I'm going to read what President Zelensky said. Direct strike of Russian troops at the maternity hospital. People, children are under the wreckage. Atrocity. How much longer can the world be an accomplice to ignoring terror? Lana Nyland is a Canadian who has lived in Kiev since 2003. She's just arrived back in Lviv in western Ukraine. Lana, thanks for joining us again. That that scene in, in, in Ukraine with the hospital is just the latest atrocity. Um, give us a sense of how things are going, where you are and what you're hearing about the war effort. You're, I know you're in Lviv, which is a hub for many of the over 2 million refugees that have fled out of that country. So um, just to give you a little bit of reference, I arrived here about 30, 35 minutes ago. Um, I left Cave, uh, I don't even know what day it is, to be honest, it was two days ago. Um, it, took, it took me eight and a half hours to drive um, about 300 kilometers. Yesterday, it took um, about 10 hours today to drive um, just uh, basically the, the, the same amount, the same amount of time. We're coming up against block posts. Of course, the block posts are there for our safety. Um, but they're stopping everybody. They want to know exactly who's in the car, why you are moving, and where you're going, and what you're transporting. Um, the, the, the towns that I went through was uh, were Bielaterkova, which is the first one, then Dinisa is where I stayed last night. In Dinisa, we were the um, the town was uh, targeted uh, a few days ago for because of its military um, airstrip. Uh, the same with Bielaterkova. It's it's just, you know, it's, it's basically a suburb of, of Kiev, and, and it's the same thing that we're seeing in Irpin and Bucha, and as you speak now about Mariupol, these are the, you know, the heart centers of, of the country, and this is what Putin is going after with, with everything he's got. T- tell me about when you left Kiev, what was the situation there? 
not great. Not great. I, I mean, there is a, an encircling, if you like, around the capital. Um, when I was traveling uh, yesterday, there was a, a large number of um, very heavy armament headed in the opposite direction. So I was headed west. They're heading towards towards the capital. This, you know, whatever. Ru- Russian armaments. You're talking about Russian armaments? No, 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 no. Ukrainian. Okay, yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. Ukrainian okay. Armaments. So the, they're preparing yeah, for the battle there. Preparing. I see. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's, and that's just what I wanted to say. You know, whatever happens, whatever Putin is planning, that city is not going... I, I don't believe it will fall. But if it does fall, it's not going up down with that fight. What were the supplies like there? Food, um, for shelter for people, like for the, for the people that are not, you know, who are trapped there. Is there, w- what kind mm-hmm. of life is there in Kiev? So I would say that probably about a third of the city is left. Those who have been able to leave have done so either, either in their cars or in public transport via um, bus or train. Um, I've heard from many people that the train is an absolute hell. Um, You've just got happy people trying to elbow their way in because because people are, are scared. Um, they don't know what's going to happen. There's no petrol left in the city whatsoever, um, unless you have some sort of connection. There's uh, the, the shelves are, are becoming ever more bare. We've got we, there's definitely a humanitarian issue that will become very. I mean, it's there already, but it will become very severe very quickly if. Um, if this continues. And you're right, uh, as well as you were talking about Mariupol. There is no there is no dignity in this war of Putin. It's not even about uh, army against army. Soldiers, Russian soldiers, have been instructed that they are to kill uh, civilians where possible. So you're in Lviv now. Uh, this is Western Ukraine. Are you planning to stay there? Take, give me your... Because... I, I want you're a Canadian, but you have obviously Ukrainian heritage. You've lived there for a long time. Um, tell tell me, are you going to stay? Because for many Ukrainian, listen, I never like to say, you know, Ukrainians are fleeing. They're being forced to leave their country for their safety, like many people are doing by the Russian atrocities and attacks. I understand that. But are you staying or are you going or are you going to try to leave? So first of all, I'm not Ukrainian, actually. I have no roots. But Ukraine has been my home for the last almost 20 years. Um, people aren't being forced to leave. They're choosing, they're choosing to leave. They're, I mean, life over death is, is, always, going to, is always going to win out. Um, and when you're... I, I don't know that this is something that Canadians can really understand. Ukraine has been through, at least since I've been in the country, has been through two revolutions. There have been any number of civilian casualties that have, have come out of, of uh, certainly the last one near Maidan. We are now under um, uh, approximately 500 600 uh, Ukrainian casualties, including children. This, you know, as, a, uh, as someone who doesn't have anything to do with the Ukrainian army or understands that his or her abilities or energies can be better focused elsewhere. That's what's happening. And so when you can disperse or when you can move into a place of safety, that's really where you become the most useful. And I, I guarantee that this, this is what a number of um, people are doing. Certainly, it is what I will be doing 
um, once they cross the border. I have trekked uh, this long way with uh, nine animals, six dogs and three cats, none of which are mine. Their owners uh, are on the other side of the of the border. They're waiting for me there. And once I pass over, I will continue the work that needs to happen here. We have a, a warehouse that we've um, sorted, and we will have a number of logistics for aid, for tactical gear, for any number of things that are going to help uh, to continue to help this effort, which is an absolute necessity. This, what's happening here in Ukraine right now, is is demonstrating to the world, actually, what can be done when the world works together. Mm. And I don't necessarily mean governments, because I think that governments can always do more, and definitely in this case. Um, but, but the world as a whole, civilians watching, you know, the everyday person. There's, there's been 18,000 um, tons of, of humanitarian aid that crossed the border in, in, the, in the first four days of the, of the war effort. So it's, yeah. The world is changing, and you're, you're, you're right in the center of it. You're just in Lviv after a long journey from Kiev, the capital. Uh, Lana uh, Nyland, a Canadian, lived in Kiev since 2003. Please take care. You're doing, I really appreciate you telling us what it's like there and, and what you're living through these extraordinary times. Thank you, Lana. Ta- please, please be safe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for caring. Oh, everyone across this country does. Alana uh, uh, Nyland. Yeah, and, and, and folks, those are the stories. They're just, I mean, just, just that one detail, taking people's pets. I don't think of those things. You're going to flee. What happens to your dog and your cat in a war zone? All right, uh, we're going to take a break. I like to leave us on our program, as you know, every day with an inspirational story. And there is a kind of an inspirational story coming out. The first ever full-length animated Disney movie is going to be set in Toronto. It's a Pixar movie. It's called Turning Red. And it last night premiered at the Tiff Bell Lightbox. And it was directed by Domi Shi, a Canadian. And remember when she won an Oscar for her short film? She was on this program, and I'm going to remind you of that next. Finding answers to all your questions. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Is everything okay? I'm a gross red monster. Don't look at me. Stay back. This happened already? What did you say? That is the trailer from Turning Red, the first ever full-length animated Disney movie set in Toronto. Premiered last night at the Tiff Bell uh, Lightbox in Toronto. The story comes from the Oscar-winning filmmaker Domi Shi, Canadian. It revolves around a spunky 13-year-old named May who turns into a giant red panda whenever she gets excited. And, of course, it features Chinatown and TTC streetcars and the CN Tower, so it's pretty cool for Canadians. Um, it was inspired by Domi Shi's life growing up in Toronto. Now, a lot of you may wonder, how do you become, how do you direct a Disney Pixar film? Well, in 2019, I spoke to Domi on this program before she'd won an Oscar for her animated short film, Bao, which was about a dumpling. You remember that? It played in theaters before The Incredibles 2. And I spoke to Domi in 2019. She'd just been nominated for an Academy Award. And we knew right then she was destined for big things. She is. 
So I thought, let's revisit that conversation. This is Domi, who's just directing this incredible, massive film. And I said, how does it feel to be nominated for a short film Academy Award? I'm still processing it. It's um, been amazing. It's like the, the last couple of days. Has it, I, I, I don't even know how many days have passed since then. But yeah, it's, it's just, um, yeah, it's, it's absolutely amazing. I feel so grateful and happy for the crew that their work uh, is like being recognized. And yeah. What would, know. you know how you, Domi, you know how like you think back of your dream as a kid and your parents mm-hmm. were like, I want my daughter to do this. And what moment did you think back to, like, how the how did I get here from there to here? What was the Domi She moment when, like, you had the crazy dream that one day you'd be nominated for an Academy Award as a filmmaker? <laughs> did do you think back to one moment uh, th- back then, like the young Domi pre Academy Award Domi? Oh man, <laughs> um, I don't know if I ever thought I could even be here. I think. Uh, the, the one moment where I thought maybe I could tell stories and draw pictures for a living uh, was when I was little, like maybe like two or three years old, and I made up this whole story um, about this potato family, like in my sketchbook, and I showed it to my parents and to anybody who'd listen, and I'd show them drawings of it, and I got a kick. Like I, I felt like really excited telling these stories um, with, with these drawings. And um, I think that was probably the earliest, earliest feeling of maybe wanting to make film one it's, day. It's, <laughs> but I don't know about Academy Awards. I, I have no, that wasn't even like, I don't think I would have allowed myself to even think that far, that like starry eyed until I heard the nominees. Yes. Like the day before yesterday. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Speaking of Domi Shi, the Canadian director of Bao, nominated for Best Animated Short at the Academy Awards. Domi, what was it like? So you're an only child, and you grow up in Toronto, and Mm -hmm. your parents are Chinese immigrants. Did they want you to do something that was not become a filmmaker? What was it like when you decided you're going to pursue this career? (laughs) Yeah, I think I was in uh, in high school, um, uh, a sophomore year, and I uh, was, I, I've always just loved drawing. Um, and I, I wanted so badly to do it for a living. And I don't think I cared what industry, whether it be comics or doing concept art or even or animation. I just wanted to draw for a living. Um, and um, my, my parents were more worried about me, uh, you know, getting a job and surviving. Right. Make some money, <laughs> um, Domi. Yeah, as parents do. So I, I did my research, and I feel like I think I came up with animation as like a good compromise or a good combination of uh, creativity and also the ability to get steady work and survive somehow better than like just, just the pure artist. So um, <laughs> not not starve. <laughs> the the bar yeah, is not just starve. not starve. So yeah, so. Not- how did you get involved in Pixar? Like Pixar is, you know, the promised land for an animator. How did you get hooked up with Pixar? Oh, I feel so incredibly lucky that I was able to get a story internship with Pixar the summer of my graduation uh, from Sheridan College. Uh, so I went to school for animation that summer that I graduated. I came to Pixar to do a three-month internship 
uh, for story. And um, it's kind of like a boot camp where you draw assignments every week and they, and you have a mentor and you pitch in front of a large group of people at the end of the week. By the end of the summer, they had offered me a full-time position as a story artist uh, on the film Inside Out. Uh, and I took it. And um, that's kind of been... My, my path to Pixar. Uh, but then you've got to be, then you come up with this story. Like, when mm-hmm. did you come up with Bao, this story of the the dumpling that springs to life, and pitch it like, I don't want to just be a animator. I want to be a, a writer-director. How did you yeah. go to that level in Pixar? So I pitched, or I came up with the idea for Bao about two years into working at Pixar, um, so my day job was a story artist, but by night I was really wanting to do something uh, on my own, like my own creative project, and I decided that I would start thinking up ideas for a short film, and uh, this was in 2014. And where I get most of ideas, m- most of my ideas is I just draw from my own life, and I just started thinking of um, the relationships and the people in my life and who I would want to tell a story about and um one of them was uh you know my relationship with my mom and being an overprotected little creature little dumpling uh and then I kind of spitballed after that and just started sketching uh these doodles of this mother coddling her little baby dumpling to death and the idea was kind of born from there and uh Pixar uh sometimes calls for pitches at the studio and anyone at the studio can uh, sign up to pitch three ideas for their next short film because um, they really believe that, like, a great idea can come from anywhere. And I signed up, and uh, that was in 2015. I pitched three ideas through, like, multiple rounds, like multiple elimination rounds with um, maybe 50 other people. And by the end of it, Bao was, like, whittled down as, like, the final, like, short, which... Uh, that would go ahead to be the next um, Pixar theatrical short. That's awesome. Crazy. Oh, my God. Yeah. The other animators must be both celebrating you and deeply envious. And now, <laughs> from this Sheridan College internship, then you win the internal competition, and now it's mm-hmm. an Academy Award uh, na- uh, nominee. Now, your future must be just unbelievable. Have you got, just before I let you go, have you got tons of offers now to make other films? Are you now basically a star? I don't know about Star, but yeah, it's definitely opened up lots of opportunities. I'm currently like mostly preoccupied with my next project, which is I'm directing a feature film at Pixar right now. Um, but you know, I I'm trying not to keep the door closed on anything and just seeing what the universe will offer. <laughs> the universe is being yeah. good to you, Domi. What's the feature film you're directing right now? Can you tell us? I can't. It's just, uh, unfortunately, I'm really excited about it. Um, it'll be a Pixar. Hopefully it'll be just as fun and weird and uh, exciting as the short. <laughs> well, Domi, what a pleasure to speak with you. Domi Shi, Canadian director of Bao, nominated for Best Animated Short at the Academy Awards. That great Canadian tradition continues. And Domi, all the best. We hope to take home the big prize. Thank you so much. That new project, Turning Red, in theaters now. Congrats, Domi. See you tonight on Power Play, folks. Have a smile.